Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Blog Talk Radio in High Fidelity. by Health Innovation Media. Welcome, everyone. I'm Greg Masters, the producer and co-host of the show. And in the virtual studio is my colleague, Fred Goldstein, principal co-host and co-founder of Pop Health Week. Hey, Fred. Hey, Greg. How are you today? I'm doing okay. We're expecting some badly needed rain down here in San Diego area, so I'm kind of stoked about that. That sounds good. I'm sitting here. I'm sitting here drinking a hot tea because we had our first freeze last night in Northeast Florida. <laughs> oh my! Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, now, how common is that? Uh, we get about uh, 15 to 20 nights like that usually during the year. Usually spread mm-hmm. out over a couple months, but um, started a little early, I think. Right. Florida's a big state. You know, everyone thinks South Florida. You know, hot all the time. But uh, I guess as you move up the latitudes, things change. Sure so. For those of you who are not familiar with Fred, he is a veteran health care executive and president of the Jacksonville, Florida-based consulting firm Accountable Health, LLC. Fred also serves on the editorial boards of the Journal of Population Health Management and Population Health News, the Best Practices Review Panel for the Institute for Medicaid Innovations at Medicaid Health Plans of America, and serves on the graduate faculty of the John D. Bauer School of Population Health at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Do follow Fred on Twitter via at F.S. Goldstein. My background includes thought leadership and strategy guidance for hospitals, health systems, and physician-led ventures. I publish and principally author ACLWatch.com and produce digital media content for emerging value-based healthcare initiatives do follow me on Twitter via at the number two health guru or at ACO Watch. And if we're lucky, <laughs> today's show, uh, we will uh, chat with David Klebonis, who serves as the chief operating officer for uh, at least one and perhaps two high performing and best in class physician owned and operated ACOs. David manages the operations at both Palm Beach ACO as well as South Florida ACO, but more on that later uh, if David shows up. Uh, Recruited as part of the original executive team, uh, David Clabonis helped lead Palm Beach ACO and its affiliates to save Medicare $45.2 million in performance year one. In performance year two, PBACO increased savings by an additional 9.8% per, ben- per beneficiary while improving quality by an average of 13.5% per measure. David currently leads ACO operations, including government rules and opportunities, network development, clinical programs, and outcome-based contracts. That's a big area right now. 
Prior to joining PBACO, David was president of Medical Insight Partners, an EHR reseller and healthcare business and tech company. His team specialized in helping physicians maximize their income through implementing technology, achieving government and payer incentives, and optimizing workflow. Palm Beach ACO is a wholly owned, operated, and governed physician-driven accountable care organization, according to the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Entities like PBACO perform better, both cost reduction and and care overall than the institutionally-led ACOs where a hospital or health system serves as parent or general partner of the enterprise directing the mission of the organization. Recently categorized into low-revenue versus high-revenue performing participants in the ACO program, whether Medicare shared savings, next-gen, or advanced payment models, physician-driven ACOs seem to be outperforming the group as a whole. So, we hope to get that story uh, if David shows up here in the next few minutes. And uh, Brad, over to you. Let's talk a little bit about what's up since we've chatted last week. Absolutely. So, you know, first off, I think, you know, we're continuing to see this question on ACOs, which we're going to obviously get into with Palm Beach County and their specifics. But the whole issue of, of um, you know, two-sided risk, the, the, the movement now to uh, more rapidly push that out within two years instead of the six years it was initially, and, and, um, and some of the pushback from the industry uh, regarding that. But I really do think that this is one of those cases where the, the train has definitely left the station, you know, we're, whether we're seeing these moves to value-based care on the CMS side and pushing more risk out to providers or seeing it on the employer side where they're doing some similar and innovative approaches. It's really uh, something that I think bears watching and you're going to see that accelerate. You're seeing, you know, obviously we just saw today, I think this CVS Aetna deal is now done. Um, You're hearing stuff about Humana talking to Walgreens and trying some innovative clinic models within their, their clinics or integrated service delivery, I should say within the uh, pharmacies and, um, and some of the other issues like state of Utah. So, it's kind of an exciting time, I think, in healthcare. And if we get Dave, David on, it'll be fantastic to talk about their specific experience, given the great results they've shown year over year down there. Um, but clearly, there are a lot of other things going on in healthcare that I think folks, whether they're in the population health, um, the health insurance marketplace, the provider marketplace, are happening now. Um, I think there was another big announcement today in that uh, United bought another group of physicians up in Seattle. So. Uh, a lot going on at one time. Yeah, where will that end? That's that's a good one. Yeah, I think this whole movement of what what people are terming payviders is really an interesting space to be in. And and you wonder as we see more and more of this push to direct contracting, and in fact CMS even talking about doing some more direct contracting with providers, if if we're not beginning to see that fundamental shift that maybe takes the insurance company or insurance vendor out from the middle of that relationship and go straight from payer to provider. And that's why many of these current payers like a United or Humana launching their Conviva capitated primary care network are not, are moving into that space. Recognizing that shift is coming. So you're based in Jacksonville, but you get around. Um, I hope you meant that in a good way. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I won't say you're omnipresent, but you 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 have a pretty good footprint out there in the pop health value based healthcare space, and have had it for quite some time. Uh, 
between the South Florida market and and let's say the Jacksonville and out into the Panhandle, are, are we talking about really uh, comparable sophistication relative to value-based healthcare initiatives, or is it pretty much um, a geographically determined uh, question? That's a that's a great one, and and Florida is a perfect example. That's so I'm glad you actually brought that up. We it, it's it's clearly market based. And so while South Florida, you know, is the bastion of these innovative ACO models, capitated primary care models, et cetera, North Florida and, and, and Northeast Florida, particularly where I'm at in Jacksonville, is much further behind that market, uh, much less pressure. The providers up here have more control and leverage in terms of relationships with insurers. And uh-huh. so they've been less willing to move into these risk markets, although we're seeing some ACOs formed. There have been some very successful primary care models underneath the Humana capitation in this market, but nowhere near the, the number or percentage of ACO market share as we see in South Florida. And I think that, that uh, extends out into the panhandle as well. It really is, as I've been telling some of the provider groups I've been talking to or others in in, in uh, discussing this move to value-based care, it's important to, to take the steps and, be, and do that, but it's probably safe to say you don't want to get too far ahead or too far behind your market itself um, because uh, the market may not be ready for it. And, and here in Northeast Florida, we're now seeing more discussions on ACOs and some push into that, but it's nowhere near as, as uh, densely uh, built up as the South Florida is. Well, with your range, especially from the disease management company days and running an HMO, a hospital, behavioral health, and otherwise, where do, and now on top of all of that, as the industry, complex as it is, continues to evolve, we hear the whole range of models inside the ACO context. There's uh, medical homes. There's provider-sponsored health plans. There's ACOs and, uh, I mean, um, Medicare Advantage uh, operators in the space. Where do you see all these things coming together? Is it from the point of view of population health, or are they all out there, or are they all out there pursuing their own agenda, and somehow this is going to roll up into a a sustainable healthcare economy? Where, Where do these things come together? I think, or do, or, I think, or do they? <laughs> I think if you know, if you think about that whole range of continuum of risk, from fee for service to pay for performance to some shared savings to bundles to capitation, there's clearly a movement towards riskier models, but not necessarily um, will any of them disappear. You know, in other words, I think there, there's going to be fee-for-service for quite a while. Um, and so you can have a, an organization that may be a, a healthcare system that has an ACO. It may have its own Medicare Advantage plan. You know, it's still doing fee-for-service business. And how well integrated they are across those various models um, is also locally driven as to how, how well they do that. At the same time, if you think about an individual practitioner who is within one of these models or a physician, let's say a primary care doctor, they're certainly 
probably not individually identifying their patients within different models and saying, I'm going to treat you one way and you the other. No, they're going to treat them all very similar. So if there's a push towards quality and reducing costs in one area, it may, you know, it's probably impacting all the patients. They're providing those types of services to all of them. So that, that obviously can be a little bit hairy if you're mostly fee for service and you've got a couple of providers who are heavily pushing, you know, reducing inpatient stay and thing like that in your hospital. And I think that's why we see that variation in performance between primary care or physician-led ACOs. Uh, it's called smaller revenue model now versus the larger revenue uh, hospital or healthcare system ACOs that are still living with these, um, you know, large structural expenses from their facilities. And I think that's something that was recently commented on. Um, and I apologize, Greg, you probably remember the, 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 the physician who just went to Google um, and in talking about the fact that, hey, these, these hospitals have to recognize they need to begin to get shut down or, or shrink. Right. Yeah, which is not a welcome idea in many communities. So let no. me try this maybe at a slightly different from a slightly different angle. I mean, it's it's not a homogeneous market, right? Healthcare. Uh it's mm-hmm. certainly local and in some cases hyper local, so no cookie cookie cutter solutions to be found anywhere, whether it's Lawrence, Kansas, Kansas, San Diego, California, or Jacksonville, Florida. So the and there's been a whole lot of activity over the decades. We've seen sort of serial waves of, of quote-unquote innovation. So, so, so my question is we keep, adding, uh, we keep adding models into the mix. And the question is, are all of those that came before sunk costs or are we innovating on top of them? What's your sense? <laughs> I... I don't know if we've answered that one yet. Um, <laughs> I think, you know, some of these models, obviously, uh, yeah. Yeah, we, we put a boatload of money into patient-centered medical homes and thinking about patient-centered medical homes. And while we've seen cases of really successful models in that space, we've also seen a lot of models that maybe haven't been as successful, which, which points to um, there's not one silver bullet. There's not the, the, the issues dealt with. And there was a, another great piece we ought to post up there today on um, how to identify BS in healthcare. Um, <laughs> that talks about this, that it's, that it is complex. There's not a silver bullet. And, and just because one model like Kaiser worked somewhere doesn't necessarily mean that model's transferable someplace else based on some of the issues you mentioned um, the healthcare market within a community the people who run it, do they, you know, are they the same? Do they bring the same expertise and skill sets? Is the, is the patient makes the same? So there are all these variables that really do point to the need to have um, the ability to recognize that, that each market may be unique and require different sets of services. Although there may be some standards around what types of things make a difference, how you ultimately implement those may vary greatly by community. Totally. And I'm glad you mentioned Kaiser because Kaiser, even inside its home market, which is California, you've got three regions, at least two, maybe three, northern, southern, and possibly San Diego. San Diego could be in the southern region. But um, you really have different footprints. 
And while there's some common operational core and central nervous system of health IT and so forth, there are different quality experiences based on the local characteristics of, of the delivery system. And when you go outside of California, you have a completely different Kaiser model because they don't have the critical mass in the Atlantic market or anywhere else. Uh, that they do in California. I mean, they own and they're. Um, it's interesting as you unbundle Kaiser, it's a for-profit professional corporation, the Permanente Medical <laughs> Group, and then you have the health plan division, and uh, which really is the sort of funnel, the licensed funnel into the, and then you got the hospital group, which is really um, a cost center relative to the uh, to the health plans operations. But you do, so they have scale in California, thirteen, I don't know, fifteen million members. I'm not sure where they're at, but uh, huge footprint. But elsewhere, they contract for hospitals. They probably, mm-hmm. in some cases, have um, primary care cores they uh, that are members of the permanent medical group, and they possibly contract outside there for specialist services. So it varies. You can't even use Kaiser as well. Here is, you know, here, here this is the model. Uh, that that works, so it varies. Then get out there into you know their IPAs still out there. I imagine there's still mm-hmm. some some PHOs that are out there. Um, so the question is, are these sunk costs, or they is the innovation being integrated with those models, or are we learning new and better things so that we can really be much more effective in our quest for value-based healthcare? I think. From my perspective, before I forget, the article I was referencing was was, uh, an interview with David Feinberg from Geisinger, who just went to Google, and it Mm -hmm. was his plan to fix ES Healthcare, which was in Becker's hospital review. But when you you talk about um, where we're at with this, I think we're learning a lot. I think we understand better what drives better health and better costs and ways that we could control um, costs, et cetera, but it's all in the implementation. It's all in the execution of those post, you know, you, if you've seen one disease management program, you've really seen one and some of them are very effective and some of them just aren't. And so it gets down to execution. Um, and I think that's where we see this major variation between, between uh, communities or where you see Kaiser, where they have this, you know, very good execution, say in California, and 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 creating great results, but you can't quite execute the same way. So you take it somewhere else, and it doesn't quite work as well. So you probably need to come up with something different there. So that's another good point, and maybe trying to build additional context here. I mean, is there a difference between a quote disease management company DM, and now what we see out there is population health management companies. Are they the same thing, or is there a qualitative difference? So it, it, as I look at population health, um, pop, disease management is a subset component of a broader population health program. It's targeted towards those with chronic illnesses within, a, within the population and seeks to improve their health status or maintain it if it's not capable of being improved in some cases, as well as doing that in the most efficient way so that you're then managing, you know, the costs of that. And if you look at a a broader population approach, you're going to have people at the far end of the scale, say, who are 
near end of life and need to be in uh, potentially in a hospice program or a palliative care program that may be more of a case management approach. You come down to those with chronic disease that need a care management approach and you move further upstream to those who are um, early risk or rising risk or no risk and some sort of a way to identify target and help those individuals maintain their health or keep them from uh, progress or, or bring them to a slightly healthier state by reducing some of those risks. And once you begin to look at that in a larger context, that becomes a population health program. And obviously then the question is, is that within a practice? Is that within a healthcare system? Is that within a community? You know, and so you're, you're beginning to see the movement of that out in the community, which is requiring the integration of all of these other community services, which we know are actually driving a lot of the community's health status. So it's more than just follow the risk and allocate and focus the resources accordingly. It's a broader strategy, but it's maybe what one leg of the stool. Yeah. With, with disease management. Yeah. It, it's an, it's a very important one because individuals, you know, with chronic illnesses, are, are utilizing healthcare services. Oftentimes that utilization is preventable or, or not, not at the appropriate place or site. And so, you know, helping people fill their prescriptions, understand and take their medications, get their preventive screenings, do their appointments, go to their primary care or specialist, depending upon their condition, can have a profound impact on higher level costs like hospitalizations, ER visits, uh, et cetera. So in your opinion, are ACOs across the broad range of Medicare shared savings up to including the next-gen models, are these population health management companies? Um, They can be. They can be. And it really depends on how broadly they've built out their programs. And they're beginning to look that way and say, you know, if you're do an annual wellness visit on everybody and have a really good sense of everybody in your population's current status and where those risks lie and what sort of areas maybe you have uh, a ton of people with heart failure and not many with diabetes, or you've got a lot of weight management issues or other things within that population, or you have food insecurities or other things that are driving it, which is actually uh, one of the things that David Feinberg talked about was at Geisinger, how they went out, and addressed these food insecurity problems among their patients with diabetes and saw substantial improvements in clinical status and cost. Uh, So I think those are beginning to look at it broader. Obviously, some of these sophisticated health systems beyond the ACOs are, are, are definitely much closer to a population health model than I would say a lot of the current ACOs are. They're still trying to figure out how they actually drive some cost savings in their programs. Right. Now, uh, before even considering um, to define what the social determinants of health really mean and how you structure programs to address them across the continuum, whether inpatient to long-term care to basically food insecurity. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. yeah. I originally and, and really... thought the. I originally thought the. My thinking was the original population health management company was an HMO because you have positive election membership driven primary care allocated responsibility for the member's health across the continuum. The one thing that, that really wasn't addressed was the social piece 
but I recall back in the day, Scan Health Plan out here based in Long Beach was a, quote, social HMO. So it sounds like uh, we're, again, more acronyms come into play. And the question mm-hmm. is, are they just more layers? Uh, are we abandoning what came before, or are we tweaking the model so that we can actually benefit from the innovation, whether it's a business model, technology, um, you name it? Yeah, I, I, and I think what's happened so far, as, you, as you, you laid it out very well, is we actually just added layers. And we haven't gotten to the point yet where the addition of a layer or these services results in removing a bunch of something else. It's possible. I think Geisinger, as he talks about, you know, and I should point out, he said, not only was it looking at food, but they were getting people out to their house and making sure they got their meds and making sure they knew it was in the cabinets and the house was safe and they got all their appointments done. And then, you know, those, those folks end up being healthier. So I think um, it's going to happen. It's going to take some innovative people. And obviously a lot of the legacy systems that we have today Ultimately, if they don't change, we will be stuck where we're at. Right, right on. So you've given a few talks here in the not in the recent past. Uh, where you been? Um, yeah, it's been interesting. I've had a couple of uh, really good um, uh, presentations. Not not myself, but being involved in these larger ones that that are actually some interest by pharma and their manufacturers on how they work in a value-based care world. And I think they're beginning to recognize the high level of pressure that's going to come on and has begun to come on their industry, whether from the federal government saying, Hey, we want to standardize your pricing based on these 10 EU markets or whatever, or places like the state of Utah that said, hey, for these 13 very expensive medications, we're going to get you to go to Mexico and pick them up from a Joint Commission International accredited facility that can track you know, these drugs and, and make sure they're all uh, appropriate and, and bought through appropriate sources, and then pay the members to do that and save thousands of dollars. People are looking for these solutions. So they're trying to figure out how they play within this space. And there are some legal issues they face. Um, you know, if you, for example, let's say you wanted to help. We know adherence is a problem and you're a, you have a product and you want to help by putting an adherence program in. Potentially, and I'm not a lawyer, so it would be important for people to talk to the attorneys, but these are the issues raised. Is that a kickback? Are you paying a kickback to get people to use your product? So I think some of that's going to have to be worked out over the next couple of years. And, uh, and I think if the, if the pharma industry gets involved and begins to provide and look at how they value their products versus just pricing them, uh, we could see some substantial changes there. So those presentations, I've had a, a couple of training sessions on value-based care in, in, for that industry that were parts of a longer day-and-a-half session that were fascinating listening to these ACOs physicians, pharmaceutical manufacturers, and others discussing how to, how to set up these models and put them out into the real world. So uh, I see you were in Baltimore at the uh, Academy of Managed Care Pharmacy, and the topic, uh, Integrated Delivery Network's Role in Pharmaceutical Value-Based Agreements, Panel mm-hmm. on the Future Considerations of Value-Based Care. What, 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 were, some of the, what were some of the 
What were some of the insights you were able to? So that's an interesting one because that'll be coming out. So I I can't comment on too much, but there'll be a a white paper from that event coming out in the Journal of Managed Care Pharmacies. Um, But it was really fascinating to listen. And we had some really world-class both uh, provider group representatives, PBM representatives, pharma manufacturer representatives going through, you know, what are the barriers, what kinds of contracts are currently out there. There's more being done in this area than is publicly known. Only some of them are announced these, these programs. So it's going to be interesting. And even the federal government and Medicaid are beginning to look at how do you set up value-based pricing models for pharmaceuticals. So it's something to really keep your eye on. I think that white paper that comes out of there will be fantastic, uh, especially given what I heard in the room from many of the participants so, and their insights. So something to keep your eye on. And, uh, and it's an area. How do, how do they play? It's, it's a little easier to say, okay, we have this, this hip or this knee. We're going to bundle the pricing. Well, how do you work the pharmaceuticals into that? Uh, and those kinds of things, I think, are some of the issues that we're dealt with. So without spilling the beans? Uh, let mm-hmm. me ask you, is this primarily about risk sharing? It can be, absolutely. That's one of the key things is are there ways to share risk? And and there have been some models where some of the places like um, um, some of the major uh, medical centers have made arrangements around certain pharmaceuticals that are based on clinical outcomes, based on adherence cool. rates. So I think cool. we're starting to see that. Absolutely great stuff. Yeah, I know. I know the whole role of the pharmacist and the care team has been evolving over the years and then you layer on top of that the relationship to cost and quality management and it's a whole new enchilada so well Fred (laughs) I want to thank you for your impromptu contributions today Uh, we didn't get around to chatting with our our principal guest I'm sure he uh, got distracted somewhere and we'll look to reschedule him but there you have it that will uh, be the last word for today's broadcast. I want to thank my colleague Fred Goldstein for uh, filling in. And we will do this again next Wednesday, 12 noon Pacific time, 3 p.m. Eastern. You follow us on Twitter as well at Pop Health Week. And thanks for listening. Bye now. <laughs>